A lot of people have sent us feedback saying, why don't we get to ask questions at these things? The simple answer is time. We've got an hour, and we just think it's more efficient doing it this way than passing a microphone around, not least because sometimes people tend to make statements rather than ask questions, and it can make things <laughs> grind to a halt. What we're going to trial tonight, and I'm pretty sure it won't work, but we're going to trial it anyway, is you can tweet questions using the hashtag beer and Brexit. I mean, chances are I won't notice, or if I notice, I won't be able to see them or whatever, and it'll just go wrong. But we're going to try that tonight. If you use the hashtag beer and Brexit, you can tweet your questions, and we will try and get them in. Uh, and we'll see how that works as by way of a compromise. Anyway, on to the main business. Our guest tonight, as you know, is Caroline Flint. I would just like to say that someone in the office is getting sacked, because when, I saw, when she saw the bio I did, she said, I was in a home office minister as well, and it's not on there. So... <laughs> Sorry about that. But anyway, apart from being in the Home Office, which we didn't know till just now, Caroline, between 2005 and 2009, was Minister for Public Health, Employment, Housing, and finally Minister for Europe between 2008 and 2009. In the 2015 Deputy Leadership Campaign in the Labour Party, she was apparently the most feared candidate by Conservative councillors, which I suppose is a compliment. Uh, she was the unofficial Labour Minister for the Today programme under Ed Miliband, which is a position that has uh, been renewed ever since that time. She's one of Politico's 40 Brexit troublemakers, and here's the best one. In 2008, The Guardian said that only Tony Blair himself has purer Blairite credentials than Caroline Flint. Wow. How's that, eh? Yeah. So let's start with that. A decade's a long time in mm. politics. Would you still see yourself or call yourself a Blairite? Do you know what I would say about my journey in politics is this. I joined the Labour Party as a teenager in 1979. Um, and uh, the first meeting I went to of the Labour Party, and I don't come from a political family, I'm from a working class family, but they, they weren't what you could call organised labour. My mum worked in shops, my grandparents managed pubs, and they came from the northwest of England originally. And, um, and I joined the Labour Party when I went to FE College because not because I studied politics at school, because of circumstances of my own family. My mother was a single parent when she had me at 17. And, you know, I started my A-levels. There was a Labour club, there was a women's group, there was the anti-apartheid. I think I joined all three. And it's because I felt the Labour Party spoke to me about what I believe society should be about. Be about. Mm -hmm. I went to my first Labour Party meeting, and the item on the agenda was how to deselect your Labour MP in a constituency that had never had a Labour MP and still has never had a Labour MP. And I suppose from that, and then, when I, went, yeah, and then when I went to university, and of course in the early 80s, you know, part of that was caught up with things like the militant tendency. Mm -hmm. 1983, I was in Norwich at university. Michael Foote came along. We lost both the MPs in that election. I've basically campaigned in every general election uh, that I've been able to since I joined. And for me, it was about, you know, not about dogma. Uh, it was about how do we actually get power to change the lives of people and make an improvement. And there's no such thing, I've always said, there's no such thing as a perfect Labour government, but my God, it's better than a Tory one. So when I came to 1997 um, as a candidate in, in Don Valley in South Yorkshire, I think along with uh, pretty much every MP stood in that election, we were desperate to have a Labour government. And, you know, I went through supporting Neil Kinnock, John Smith, and, of course, you know, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and we wanted it to succeed. And I'm not going to apologise for that, 
Because when you've had 18 years in the wilderness, the chance to actually do something and make a difference is important. So I was part of that. All the women we were called Blair's Babes, Blairites, whatever you call it. I'm essentially a Labour tribalist. Okay. Which is why I will never join another party or be part of forming another party. Labour is in my blood. But, I mean, despite that, you've always managed to be something of a minority in the party, haven't you? You were a Blairite under Brown. Well, there used you to be a time... You supported the Elder Miliband. <laughs> I mean, you were always like, slightly niche in the Labour Party. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know about minority. I mean, you know, the journey to 97, which was as much about Tony and Gordon, to be honest, and actually predated by some of the changes that John had made and Neil before him, mm -hmm. uh, that was a journey for Labour to get into a position where we could, you know, across the country command enough support to win an election and that's the bottom line that's why the labor party was formed out of the labor movement the trade union movement was actually we essentially needed power to really change things so i don't see myself as a minority in those days i'm not actually in terms of if you like a blairite under brown when he was in charge i don't didn't see it like that what i what i what i found difficult i have to say was the soap opera and psychodrama that in some ways I think got in the way of what we were trying to do in government between Blair, Blair and, and Brown. Brown. Yeah, absolutely. And the problem I found with politics, as I say, not coming from a... Look, I didn't sit around the breakfast table with Tony Byrne and others. I never interned for a Labour MP or anything like that. Is what I think I found probably the most difficult thing to deal with in politics, which maybe is naive, is how personal ambitions can get in the way of actually doing what we need to do. So, you know, I would like to see less of that psychodrama and more focusing on how we deliver and attending to the issues of the country. And for me, always, um, I live in Doncaster. I, I believe in the constituency link with my heart and soul. And actually, the soon as we start losing touch with what communities are saying and how they're responding to the policies we're doing to make sure those policies are actually delivering what we wanted them to do, and it just becomes all about the personalities, then I think you lose it. And I think that was a danger, along with, obviously, the financial crash that came along as well. But, you know, despite my disagreements with Gordon, you know, I think he is an incredible politician, Labour politician, and deserves a lot of credit for what he did in the run-up to 97. But why should I, as an individual, agree 100% all the time with everybody, and I don't? Do you... So we're going to segue now towards mm. the Brexity things. Was it a mistake not to impose transitional controls in 2004 on, after EU enlargement? Yes. Why? I think part of it was because I didn't think we think, thought through about what the changes mean. I, look, I sort of understand that potentially one argument was, was how could you, the UK position itself as a broker within the EU in terms of when you're competing with probably France and Germany and their powerful influence over things? So to offer to the A8 to come in without any transitional controls was also presumably part of that game plan to say, well, who are our allies that yeah. we want in the European Union? And I totally understand that as well. The well, not the only problem, but part of the problem was the arguments that were used to not have transitional controls ended up really not being based in any sense of reality of what would happen. I I'm, don't... I was going to say, don't quote me on this, but this is being live stream. I seem to recall, I seem to recall at the time um, uh, when, people were, when politicians were asked about, well, how many people we thought might come in, we were talking about tens of thousands. Mm. 
Because we thought others would open their markets Exactly. Well. Yeah. But we didn't take into account that when that didn't happen, what that would mean. But it, but and, so and, in, and I think... So I think that in itself showed a lack of preparation and a lack of uh, scenario planning about what we should do when that happened. I think the bigger problem down the road, and you know, there were some issues rumbling away, and, and not just about, let's be honest about it, not just about um, EU migration. When I first came into uh, Parliament, one of the massive issues was the backlog of asylum claims not being dealt with. Um, and that system, and in fact, you know, actually the UK was at um, the heart of the debate that you couldn't shop around. When yeah. you entered into the EU area, you had to claim asylum at the point of entry. So we did quite a lot on that front as well, uh, which sometimes gets forgotten. But I think probably, you know, a lot of concerns about migration, the changes that were happening. I think our cities in the last 20, 30 years have done extremely well. But I think there has been that loss of understanding of what's gone on with our smaller towns and communities around the country. And the other problem, of course, was the global financial crash. Because in some ways, when things were, seemed to be working well, it masked a whole number of other issues. And I think, in many respects, uh, that particular event exposed um, uh, concerns in a way that they hadn't been presented before. But isn't that a tad disingenuous? Because actually, one of the reasons why we had healthy growth between 2004 and 2008, where productivity didn't improve, mm. was simply because our population was getting bigger. I mean, those people made possible many of the things that the Labour government could do because they were they were helping the economy grow. Um, I wouldn't dispute that and and to be honest um, you know I wouldn't want anyone to think for one minute that I'm against migration mm. I think it's a positive but I think you know wanting to manage migration is not something at odds with, is at odds with Labour values there's plenty of uh, socialist countries um, and uh, that have migration policies in them so um, it's not it's not at odds to say we need to manage migration um, and in the same way, welcome it too. Okay. And actually, you know, and this is what I found uh, most distasteful about some of the comments regarding Brexit. When I have talked to my constituents and actually, you know, surveyed my constituents as well, um, they're not against all migration. But they do feel, and let's be honest about it, the Home Office has not covered itself in glory, and I don't blame the civil servants for that. I remember as a Home Office minister, and I used to cover organised crime and, uh, as my brief, but I do also remember that you know, often the people who worked in the immigration services were often the poorest paid civil servants across Whitehall. And to be honest, you know, nobody goes out saying, hey, immigration workers, you're doing a good job. Not like they do about maybe some of the other civil servants in other departments. And I think fundamentally, sure government, government, well, I think governments have just failed uh, to really deal with the sort of migration we need for the, the you know, the 21st century. Can, can we just talk about your constituency? Yeah. From, I, I grew up in West Yorkshire, so South Yorkshire is a place you drive through, but I don't know anything <laughs> about it. I mean, why, why did the people in your constituency in, in Don Valley vote for Brexit, do you think? I think there's a number of reasons. I think... Um, uh, Part of it is about feeling that the national uh, communications about how well we're doing, they didn't see themselves reflected mm -hmm. in. And that is not to say for one minute that my constituents haven't benefited, for some of the, benefited from a number of the things the Labour government did. We have built more schools, we improved our hospital services, we reduced waiting times. Um, obviously the national minimum wage and other employment uh, rights that uh, Labour supported have been a benefit. But I think that, you know, not just for towns like Doncaster, those sort of, you know, which was built on coal and rail, 
but other places, my husband's from Teesside, so the steel and chemical industry, um, but also our coastal towns. Really, there hasn't been enough uh, you know, thought of in terms of how we address those needs. Now, that's not to say the Labour government did have, sure we had pamphlets about our coastal towns, but it wasn't tangible enough and practical enough for people to sort of see that they were uh, benefiting. I think the other thing is, is this, is that it's about coping with change. And look, as someone who was born in London, um, London as a city, like many of our other cities, has had hundreds of years of waves of migration and coping with change. Uh, there is a world out there outside of London that is very different because the nature of the industry in that area did not necessarily drop. Coal mining never drew yeah. from India, Pakistan, the West Indies. Thank God. Uh, you know, I think we've, you know, when I used to, when I go out door knocking and I look on the electoral register, you know, this is before, obviously, the last sort of 20 years, you sometimes find some Ukrainian surnames, Polish surnames, some of whom who came over before World War II and just post-World War II. But a very different environment. So when colleagues say to me, but Caroline, there's hardly any migration in your area, they're right. But the thing is, it's about the rate of change yeah. and the ability to cope with change. And the resource has not been there in the same ways that cities have had, but also in what can be, not exclusively, a pretty low-wage, low-skill economy. Suddenly, overnight, you can have situations where workplaces are transformed. And that hasn't been helped, and I don't think it's helped workers from the EU as well, when uh, some employers, not all, but some employers have wholesale recruited through uh, uh, recruitment agencies from parts of the European Union, and suddenly something changes completely overnight. But we've got a, I've got a colleague, one of the UK and Changing Europe team, based in yeah. Sheffield, and they look at the regional impacts of Brexit. Sheffield voted leave. Uh, yeah. But what his research uh, suggests is that a third of manufacturing at South, in, of South Yorkshire is going to be at risk directly because of Brexit. So aren't you just making the problem worse? Well, I think the thing is, is that there, look, there's lots of things said about um, uh, uh, what will, may happen in the future. I would say this, you raised the point yourself. When it comes to skills and productivity, even while we've been in the EU, EU the UK hasn't been doing very well. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been enough attention given to that. As an MP, I have gone to countless parliamentary meetings and receptions, having various people from trade associations talking about the skills agenda. And it still hasn't happened mm. in a way that people feel they're equipped, not just for today's jobs, but for future jobs. And the same goes for things like productivity. So I think the problem with this is, is that, you know, as soon as there's something, or particularly post the referendum, right, as soon as there's something in, that suggests that the economy is dipping and a firm suggests that it's not investing, and why would they say that when they're not quite sure what's going to happen next? And we probably get onto that. I mean, I'm not, you know, I think the fact that a lot of firms are holding back is understandable, given where we are at the moment, not sure what's going to happen on the 29th of March. But by the same token, you know, in Doncaster, we have a new National Rail College. Uh, we have already got apprenticeships starting there. We're actually, actually, funnily enough, we're seeing a renaissance of those rail jobs and rail companies in Doncaster. We're going to have something like a 1,000 apprentices through that, 50% women, 50% men. We have got up the road Siemens investing in at, over at uh, the Goolway a new manufacturing um, uh, plant for train carriages. So I'm not, I, I wouldn't like to suggest that everything is hunky-dory, but there are some things happening that are quite good, despite the fact mm -hmm. we're leaving the European Union, and there's clearly some things that are being affected by it. 
I actually think part of this goes to the heart of the discussion about what sort of deal are we going to have with the European Union. But we, I, whatever happens on the 29th of March, having gone through the last two years, I hope that somehow people like myself and, and Lisa Nandy and others, we are trying to make sure there is still a voice for some of those concerns that led to Brexit that still need to be resolved. Because actually, you know, the problem in all of this is those communities haven't really had the hearing they should have had about why they're concerned, about why they don't feel they're sharing in these national benefits mm -hmm. and part of a national endeavour. And, you know, if as much time would have been given to that before the referendum, we might not be in the place we are now. No, no, absolutely. I mean, and we will come back to this. So let's, let's get on to where we are now. Mm. Do you admire the way that Theresa May has carried out these negotiations? At no. All? Why not? No. I think it's been a disaster. I mean, look... Say what I, you think. Well, right. I mean, I said early on uh, in this, um, I mean, whether Labour would have accepted it or not, she'd have been quite canny to offer to Labour, given that when we went into the 2017 general election, both the Conservatives and Labour were saying we respect the outcome of the referendum, mm. no second referendum, and we'll work to get a, a, a good deal. Obviously, maybe Labour had a different view of what that should be to Theresa May. But do you know what? She could have done so much more to recognise that there was no way that she was ever going to come up with something that had any element of compromise in it and reality that the hardliners like Rees-Mogg and Johnson and Davis would support. And she could have, baby, I well, think... She thought she was going to get a massive majority, Yeah, but she, she was ridiculous. Yeah, but that failed at general yeah. election, didn't it? Yeah. 2017. So regardless of what she thought before that, you know, 51 days later, she must have known that yeah. that was a problem. She could have, you know, reached out beyond. I mean, and, and even this week, and, you know, yesterday at her statement, you know, I said to her, look, you're clear you don't want a no-deal Brexit. Jeremy's clear he doesn't want a no-deal Brexit. So why don't you just you know, forget about those people who you're never going to win on your side. And in, if you're going to talk about the national interest, in the national interest, actually have some meaningful conversations with Jeremy about where we need to go on this. And you really now, think I'm it's not, not too late for some sort of cross-party deal now? And there's not too no, much... I, I think... Do you know what? I, I can't say whether, you know, it's not for me to say how Labour respond to that. But I think, actually, you know, out there in the country... People are saying, what the hell are politicians doing? They should be sorting this out. They should be working together in the national interest to get this done. And I think, you know, for Theresa May, I mean, how many, how many times can you go to a summit not even clear about who's supporting you, whether it's the DUP? I mean, how many times have gone in there and then it turns out, oh, didn't give Arlene a phone call? I mean, it's quite a ridiculous situation. Just to say this, I did think early on that maybe it was a, a smart thing to get, um, uh, you know, the three stooges, Liam Fox, uh, David Davis and Boris Johnson leading on negotiations, because I thought, oh, that sounds quite clever. She's put the arch levers in charge of getting this, so they're going to have to compromise. But it was clear that, you know, they couldn't run a whatever in a brewery. Um, so, I mean, so now she's made a wrong choice on that. She now has to, seems to me, decide, because she's not going to get the numbers uh, for this vote coming up. I mean... So she's going to have to decide if she wants a deal, she wants a managed exit, uh, she's got to decide who she's going to try and win support from, and she has to win Labour over some of that. Are you going to vote for the deal? Look, I just feel at the moment that um, my biggest fear in all of this was helping a no-deal Brexit. And, you know, people say, 
Um, there isn't a majority in Parliament for a no deal. But the problem is, is when you look at the maths, by default, there could be a no deal. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> okay. fair enough. Um, but the problem is, is that you could therefore just give what the hardline leavers want, basically, to go out, nothing organised. I don't, I've never agreed with that. Um, and I've said that to leave voters in my own constituency as part of our conversations. But the problem is now is at one point I thought, well, you know, actually, let's see how we go with the arrangements, what they come back with. She is so isolated at the moment that, to be honest, I'm going to see what happens over the next five days, six days. I've said already that I think she should approach Labour and see what could be done. There will be amendments, I think. Not clear at the moment whether they'll come before that vote or mm. after that vote. But I think there is room for manoeuvre here. Um, and I think that's important. Lisa Nandy, who you mentioned before, has said mm. that the deal is too big a gamble to take with our constituencies. Do you have any sympathy for that? Yeah, I do. I mean, because there are so many ways in which um, uh, Theresa May could put some more meat, if you like, on, on the bones of this. I mean, just, you know, reading through the political declaration, um, you know, in the first, I think, three paragraphs, there's, you know, some phrases and sentences about workers' rights, about the environment, about health and safety. You know, I think, you know, what, you know, I'd like to hear more is about, you know, we, we're not beholden to the EU to have good employment rights or good health and safety. I mean, the fact is the Labour government brought in a national minimum wage and we did other things that went beyond what the EU yeah. was having. But by the same token, I think, bearing in mind where we are now, I think it's really important that whatever a government, and I hope it's a Labour government, does in the future in these areas... What we won't contribute is falling behind the EU when it comes to these areas of huge importance to Labour people like myself and Lisa. And I think that's something that Theresa May could move on and make clearer. And if that means, for example, you know, um, a, a statement that, or something that says we will not fall behind, we could move further forward, but we won't fall behind, and that Parliament, when if the EU changes in some of these areas, Parliament will then debate it and vote to align ourselves with it, I think there's ways to do this, which would give more reassurance that what we're not heading for is a situation where it's the lowest common denominator and we'll just go lower and lower in some mad way to think that that's going to compete in terms of creating growth, productivity and the skills we can need. I, can I just pin you down then on what you do? I mean, you've, you've been critical of the idea of Norway plus customs union yeah. as being a betrayal of the votes. But at the same time, you've talked about having a customs arrangement yeah. and a close <laughs> relationship with the single market. And, and to the cynic, they yeah. sound a little bit similar. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, if you, I mean, Labour's position on the customs arrangement is, from what I understand of it, is that, um, you know, we but both... But you support it, nonetheless. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, th I sort of think the problem is, is we do have to sort of answer some questions on this about how we have a customs arrangement and still want to be able to strike some of our own, our own trade deals, which is, I think, what partly Labour was saying at one point. And have point. a say on EU trade and deals. And have a say yeah. on EU on that. Now, you know, um, part of this goes to the negotiations and basically who's prepared to give on what. And as with any international treaty, um, to a certain extent, you know, the tone of it is important and how people yeah. read into it. Um, what I th The problem about the Norway option is that, um, and, you know... I say an export. I know Norway quite well. Um, I have friends there. I've talked to them about it. Norway has had two referendums, I believe, mm -hmm. where they both rejected joining the EU. And the EEA option for Iceland and Liechtenstein and Norway, you know, was fitted to suit their situation. I've never believed 
that somehow there's a, a deal on the shelf, whether it's Norway or Canada, that we just take off and say that's our option. That doesn't reflect you know, our economy, it doesn't reflect our relationship with Europe. But the biggest sticking point on it, and that's not just for me, but for a number of other MPs, is about free movement. Is that actually, unfortunately, that some, well, some of that I wouldn't necessarily disagree with in terms of some of the Norway option. The problem is, is our ability to change free movement, and that doesn't allow for that. But aren't you in danger of sounding as cakeist as Jeremy Corbyn and indeed Theresa May? You, I mean, what the EU seems to have made clear throughout these negotiations is you're either in the single market or you're out, unless we impose bits of it on you for a level playing field. And what you can't do is be close and stop free movement and get the bits Well, they are saying that technically in the declaration from what I can read at the moment. I mean, I know that's all got to be sorted out in the mix, but from a, you know, and I'm still ploughing my way through the, some of the 500 uh, odd pages of um, the uh, withdrawal agreement. But I mean, that is part, pardon? Steve Pearce summarises the whole oh, thing. Oh, great, lovely, yeah, that's fantastic. great. Um, but actually, in some ways, that is being agreed, isn't it? I mean, there's lots of talk in, in the, uh, the political declaration about tariff-free, about uh, you know, alignment in different areas. But it's also acknowledged that we will have um, uh, controls over freedom of freedom of movement yeah, that we haven't got now. There's a difference, though, isn't there? Because what's happening is the European Union is imposing minimum standards on us in the areas where they don't trust us. Mm. But they're not giving us single market terms in the sectors we want it. I mean, that's, that's, I mean it seems to me that what both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn mm. went into these talks saying is, we'll get bits of the single market, you know, we'll have a bit mm. of financial mm. services if mm. we like, we'll have a bit of that if we like. And the EU said, no, what we're gonna do is restrict your autonomy to actually deregulate because you Brits have been talking about it for 30 yeah. years and we don't trust you. But you're not gonna get into the market on single market terms unless you accept no. freedom of and, and Well, and that's part of also, isn't it, about having the transition period, the implementation period to get to an association agreement at the end of the day. I don't think any of this is easy, and I don't think any of this is easy at all. But, you know, I do find it, I don't know, I do find it a little bit um, difficult that having in the last, um, uh, particularly the last year and a half, you know, Labour argued for a transition period slash implementation period and that we were just going to have the headlines of the divorce. We now seem to be saying, well, we've got to have everything in detail before yep. we get to that next point. And I just think there's a, a you know, we have to make our mind up on this uh, about where we stand. And, and the truth is, I mean, I, I wouldn't underestimate by any stretch the difficulties of all this. And probably, in all honesty, anybody who was in government would have found this really difficult. And the truth, and part of that is, is which is what, you, you know, we've had a bit of difficulties about the exact same benefits, you know, which yeah. is one of Labour's tests, is it, it clearly cannot be the exact same benefits. By the very fact that we're saying freedom of movement can end, some people will say, but we're going to lose the benefits of that, so it cannot be the exact same benefits. It's objective, some of this. Not to mention and, the benefits of actually being at the table and having a vote. Yeah, well, no, exactly. So the fact is... I don't know how you de define that. It seemed to me a throwaway comment from David Davis, which we should have treated with the sarcasm it deserved, and told him to grow up. Rather than quite adopting frankly. it. I think it's just, I don't know why we've ended up with that, and I've had that conversation with colleagues. Um, but you know, I think as a way, I think it was put in to have a pop at David Davis, and now it's there. I think the thing is, is that truth is, is that it is absolutely fair and honest to say that we cannot, as you say, have your cake and eat it there will have to be some differences that show that actually, you know, why, why would they say to the, why would the other 27 sign up to something um, for us 
that yeah. they couldn't have outside of it. I, and I, this is difficult stuff, but I get that and understand that. And, and fundamentally, it's like one of those things with any international negotiation. Every party's going to have to come out of the room claiming victory in some way or another. Okay, I'm very excited now, not just because <laughs> I've got the team news for the Leeds game just come through, but also <laughs> we have a question from Twitter. Yeah. From Graham on Twitter, who says, what realistically could the government renegotiate with the EU if the deal is voted down? Is, is, so are you one of those people that thinks she can just go back to Brussels and get something better? I don't think it's that easy. I mean, I think the problem is, is that, you know, the fact that we have got this um, document, um, you know, uh, that has come with the blessing of the 27. So to reopen, I think, is really difficult. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things is potentially around the political declaration, whether think anything could be more added into that. But I think none... What would, what would make you happier in that? Because nothing's well, going to be binding. Well, but I think there is something about potentially how we can... And again, this depends on parliamentary procedures. I mean, again, you know, at the end of the day, a treaty is treaty. We could pass, many, pass as many motions as we like in the House of Commons. They're not necessarily binding on the government. And I mean, that goes to the issue about Article 50. I mean, as far as I understand it, technically, the only two parties that can change that are the government yeah. and the EU27 in terms of our leaving date. But I think part of it is about, you know, intent, tone, and whether there is something more that can be gained in the next, and even if it's not the next days come, when we come back in January, um, to um, further somehow put some more substance onto some of the, if you like, uh, wish lists that are in the political declaration. And as I said, for one thing for me would be about um, how we, um, how Theresa May responds to something which can more clearly enshrine, and actually in some ways this isn't mm. to do with the EU, this is to do with our domestic policy, yeah. an intent that we will not fall behind the EU when it comes to workers' rights, health and safety standards and the environment. I think that, you know, I'm, and I think that's something that has to be grasped. But isn't there something very fundamental there, which is the European Union introduced into our political system a form of constitutional law that we don't have? That is to say, if stuff was enshrined at EU level, mm. Parliament couldn't change it. Mm. And in our domestic system, we don't have that, do we? We don't have that, that sort of constitutional law. We have legislation. You yeah. can't bind the next Parliament. And actually, in that sense, we've lost the ability to guarantee rights simply by losing that constitutional superstructure. Yeah, you're right. You're probably right in that way. But I, I mean, thought that was I think, a really good point. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, I think. You're... <laughs> but you know, again, you know, you know, part of what, I, in some ways, that this whole last, you know, two to three years has, you know, the moment at which Cameron said we're going to have a referendum. Yeah. You know, we probably, in some respects, you know, paid more attention to the issues around, you know taking back control, sovereignty in Parliament, yeah. than we have for many, many decades. Yeah, we've you noticed know, apart, Northern Ireland. You know, well, I yeah. mean, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I do find it, you know, there's obviously some massive issues uh, regarding Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, but, you know, in the, in the mix of all this, we haven't had a Northern Irish Assembly yeah. for nearly two years. I mean, seriously, you know, surely part of our concerns about things like the Good Friday Agreement about how Northern Ireland functions, about the devolved powers that are there. Yeah. Why is it I don't hear as many voices talking about our concerns about the fact that there's been no Northern Irish Assembly for nearly two years? Mm. I mean, I think that should, shouldn't that should concern us as much? Mention. It should yeah. warrant a mention. It should concern us, you know, a, a parallel track um, alongside obviously any issues around the Republic uh, and the Northern Ireland and the border between them. 
got such a good question from Twitter, I was going to take credit for it myself, but I won't. <laughs> it's from Colin Tawney, who says, do you, do you envisage a situation in which the Labour leadership might swap support for the deal for a general election in the spring? Oh, what do you mean... Say to, to I think I saw this somewhere on it social media. Sort of, yeah, you say to well, Theresa May, support. So we, <laughs> is that the one where we should, they go to Theresa May and say, so "We'll look, give you the deal, but give us a general election." We we'll might back it second time, but in return, <laughs> you've got a pledge that you'll call a general election in the spring, which is what we really want. I don't. I mean, look. I mean, I think we're into fantasy guessing. Anything can go, and I, in some ways, and I wouldn't want to be rule anything out. I, I feel there's no appetite, despite everything, for a general election on the Tory benches, or the DUP for that matter. Now, that's not to say that Theresa May will still be Prime Minister. Yeah. I think there are a number of other options that probably are more realistic than a general election. Um, it could be that if her deal goes down, that there'll be a move on her uh, to replace her. Um, I have a little worry about where that ends up, because we could end up with a, a Conservative leader who wants a harder Brexit than she is trying to do. Theresa but I mean, May I think I can't have, I don't have any sense that they want a general election. Would you change your calculation about this vote if the Prime Minister intimated that if it fell, she'd resign and leave the way open to Boris, Jacob, Andrea, someone who actually is a bit scarier on Brexit? <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think if that was on the table, and I'm, I think we should all be thinking about what that might mean. Not just me, but people above my pay grade should be thinking about what that might mean. Mm -hmm. Because in terms of some of the concerns that we rightly have in the Labour Party uh, about where we need to be in, uh, in a number of areas, if that suddenly became uh, the picture, then I think we, you know, that's something we should consider. And the, truth, and the thing is, is that... You know, would I've... it scare you into voting for the deal? No, not necessarily, because I think the thing is, is that I don't think at the moment, and who knows what might happen in the next whatever it is, is 10 days, mm. uh, up to the December the 11th, I think the problem at the moment is somehow or other she has managed to uh, affect a situation whereby there could be some, I don't know, 70, 80 on her side, some hardline leavers, some hardline remainers who are just not going to vote for her deal. Mm. So I don't think in that sense, you know, my vote is going to make much of a difference in all of that. Um, and I think she Not has... a bit of a cop-out? No, I don't think it's a cop-out because at the end of the day... You know, I have, and some of us, have tried our best to keep true to our promises, to the electorate, to try and find a reasonable deal. I can hand on my heart say uh, that when I have, you know, voted for things that I think are important in recognising there's going to have to be some compromise when it comes to a deal, and have voted with Labour on that many, many times, um, you know, that's the sort of, if you like, middle ground that I have tried to adopt. I would have to say... I think there are some uh, Remainers in Parliament who haven't been sincere when they've tried to say that they've got amendments to try and get best deal. I no, think no, it's absolutely. becoming absolutely clear that, um, you know, the, po the, polarisation, the, the polarised way in which this debate has um, uh, developed shows that actually there's more in common between hardline Remainers and Leavers uh, who now, none, neither of them want a, a deal for different reasons. Yeah. One, to leave without any reasonable mm -hmm. deal with the EU, the others to affect uh, a turning over of the referendum result. Did you go to Gavin Barwell's briefing for Labour MPs? <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh. No, I didn't. I'm sorry about that. I was looking forward to asking you about that. No, Have you I heard did, what happened? I, no, I didn't, go, I didn't go to that. I, I heard... Did you talk Labour? So all I've heard about it is, uh, I think there were about 27, 30 people there, I understand. And, um, 
you know, it was, I don't know what they were really trying to affect from it, but, you know, the, the problem is with the, 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 conser you know, the Conservative government's tactics or strategy on this is that they could have done so much more in the last 18 months to, in a meaningful way, engage with Labour mm -hmm. on a lot of our concerns. Um, they literally, I think I'm right, um, somebody geeky might correct me, I think they basically pretty much um, uh, voted down pretty much every amendment we made. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that's really been helpful to the discussion. And, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, they're coming uh, to Labour people now in a much weakened position in terms of their own backbenches. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, I think some of that is... I wouldn't say it's too late, uh, because I think there is still time in this, but I think they've got to be uh, a bit more sophisticated and have to show a level of sincerity. Uh, but if they're just going... I mean, uh, let me give you an example. What is the point of a TV debate? I mean, seriously, what is the point of a TV debate with Theresa May and Jeremy? It'd be far better if she was prepared to actually say, I want to sit down and work with you because actually I know I don't, can't re deal with the sort of ultra levers on my side. What is it we need to get to to get a deal that's going to work in the national interest? Rather than standoffs, I mean, she might as well have a TV debate with Jacob Rees-Mogg, as far as I can understand. Or Tony it. Blair, which has been Or Tony Blair, apparently. for that matter. Or Tony Blair, for that matter. You're absolutely... But why challenge Jeremy when actually what she should be doing is, is actually seeking a way to actually see if there's any common ground at all? Because, you know, both of them have said, she said, Jeremy has said, you know, the worst thing is to crash out without a deal. So there's at least something that is an element of a basis for a proper discussion. I'm going to come back to that, but talking of Tony Blair, has he been on the phone to tell you that you're wrong? Has no. he tried to talk you around to... Uh... No, I don't think he's got my phone number. Oh, really? No. He's not even sent you an email no. or something? So no, you... nothing. OK, but you're Blairite-in-chief. Well, I, I think, I don't know about that. Um, uh, <laughs> no um, I, but, no uh, communication? No. All right. So, imagine a situation in Parliament, this deal gets voted down, and it looks or it starts to crystallise into something that looks like no deal, second referendum. Now, you've said about a second referendum, it'll lead to far-right resurgence, discord and distrust. Mm. If you were confronting that binary choice... Mm. Oh, God. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Choice of two evils. What, a choice of no deal in a second referendum? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, so you really don't like a second referendum? I really don't like a second referendum. I don't think it takes us around. I still feel that there is space, and I have to say, I think, in the national interest here, I do think it's in the national interest to get a deal. I really do. And I think... Um, I, think uh, the, I mean, it's quite interesting to me that over the weekend the people's vote seems to have changed tactics on this. Before, a number of them, Justin Greening and others, were saying, well, what we want is a second referendum and we want to have deal, no deal, and remain. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, over the weekend, they're saying it's no deal versus remain, um, which I think just exposes the hollowness of some of the people involved in that about wanting to try and get a deal at all. And that, for me, has been, you know, one of the most difficult things in all of this, is that, you know, people talk about people's vote. Well, you know, we had the referendum, but we also had a general election in which both main parties said they respected the outcome and didn't support a second referendum. Mm -hmm. 
I don't have a sense, despite some of the polling that I see, that there's been a massive change. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be a massively, one, a huge risk to have a second referendum and it won't solve anything. Whether that's with Remain winning by a couple of percentage points or, for that matter, Leave reaffirming um, the outcome of 2016. Surely that will settle and it. And I think, pardon? Surely that will settle it. Well, I mean, you know, who knows? Am I on a third referendum? But the problem is we lose more time in all of this. And I think it would create such political distrust mm -hmm. of the establishment in all its forms that that is going to be a very hard job to repair anytime soon. So I mean, you say. So you I do worry about that, and and for those some of those people on social media who say to me, "Oh, why, you know, you're frightened of, you know, the far right." Well, look, you know, I've spent my time over the years, you know, you know, with the anti-Nazi league, with other fighting. But what I do know is, is that one of our problems has been, and we saw that with UKIP, is in a vacuum where people don't feel anyone's listening to some of those concerns. You know, the far right has always played on that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's something to be concerned about. You know, following the referendum, in a good way, by the way, UKIP support for UKIP tanked. Because basically people felt, that, you know, they'd had their say, there was an outcome, it was now down to Parliament, the government to sort it out. And some Unless people, you just think that the Tory people, party became UKIP. Well, I mean... Well, how many of them joined UKIP, uh, joined the Tory party? And not as many as some might think. But the point is, is that it actually sort of people felt we've had our say um, and now get on with it. The danger that if people feel that they have been ignored or the system and the powers that be, the establishment, are basically trying to sort of, you know, um, you know do them over, I think is, you know, that could just could just lead to another resurgence of something far more worrying than, uh, I have to say, UKIP. And, but also, generally, the distrust in politics. So I get that you want a deal, but isn't there a real danger that Parliament has become so polarised between the sort of mm. second referendum flank and the no-deal flank that there isn't a majority in Parliament for any conceivable deal? Well, that's yet to be what's your decided. Gut on that? Well, I think it is very polarised. Um, I think... I think on one level, a number of colleagues, and I, I totally understand this, are keeping their head down. Mm -hmm. across, across all parties, mm -hmm. to be honest. Uh, because let's be honest about it, if you put your head above the parapet, I mean, you are literally seized on mm. and devoured by hardline views on both sides of this debate. It is Jesse not, Norman it has is managed not, not to say anything at really? all about Brexit since before the referendum. Is he a minister? It might be a junior minister. Oh, exactly. Not on my radar then, in that case, I don't know. But I mean, the thing is, is that lots of people have kept their head down and said absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. on, and, I, and part of that is, I think, the, the climate, the atmosphere, the debate, and all this. And in all fairness, it's been pretty unclear about the direction of travel and where it's going to go and where it's going to end up. Okay. I do think um, that uh, they're probably. Are a, are a number of MPs across parties, but including my own, who are very concerned about if this... If, and I don't think you'll even get to a second referendum, I have to say, but I don't think there's a majority in Parliament for a second referendum, including on our side. Have you faced abuse on social media and the like for your stance on this? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, we're going to get some easy questions now. <laughs> Can Jeremy Corbyn win an election? Actually, I think he could. I think he could. And part of the reason why I say that is that um, I think... It's very important about a general election and how we, how we uh, deal with Brexit. 
because there is no doubt about it, you know, our, in terms of our party and our voters, we have differences. It's absolutely quite clear. But six out of ten Labour MPs represent Leave seats. And so how we, how we are seen to deal with this process, and actually I respect the fact that Jeremy has, you know, tried to navigate a very difficult course in all of this. He's played I mean, a given, given, really. given, given that he is literally... I think the Member of Parliament with the most Remain seat in the country, I think Islington North must be up there in mm. the top three. I think he's actually, you know, tried to be, tr you know, not just tried, but is being true to some what he said. Even at party <coughs> conference, um, which was a bit of a surprise to some people, I mean, he actually offered, said, to, you know, to Theresa May, look, what can we work on yeah. here? So, but, so, but I do think that one of the aspects of where we are today is that a lot of the issues of concern that people have about our economy, the rebalancing our economy, mm -hmm. the left behind communities, you know, how are we going to address that? I actually think not just Jeremy, but a number of our Labour team are saying things that actually the public agree with. I think there has been quite a shift on a number of areas. I'm not personally, and you might say this is where the Blairite comes out of me, I'm not personally thinking that the answer to everything is to nationalise everything, but actually the truth is that isn't Labour's policy either. Um, on energy, you wave the little red book around in Parliament, either would you? I think I've got one at home somewhere. I think I've got a bust of Lenin at home when I visited Russia when I was twenty. But anyway, that Soviet Union as it was in those days. That's the but tweet the thing we're is, use. but the thing is, is that you know there is a change in public's mind about yeah. some of the ways the market. And look, I did the energy brief for Ed Miliband for five years, and probably um, did more as a Labour politician, uh, if you like, in recent memories to challenge the way in which these private companies run our energy system than anyone had done from a long time. And my view was that actually energy needs to be a managed market because it actually is about essential to life, you know, um, products, heating, light that people need. Um, and, and actually in terms of energy policy, um, Labour's position is, is pretty much where it was where I left it. Albeit what we've said, and I completely agree with this, that in the scope of the future where energy is, there is much more scope for local authorities providing mm. energy and for community groups and organisations to generate and sell energy as well. So a mixed economy of what we can provide. Now, I think some of those things actually chime with people. I would have to say, when it comes to things like the railways, I mean, I know you might not think this in, in London, particularly those who commute into London, but, you know, lots of parts of the country just do not feel they are being served by, you know, the railway system. Mm. And, and actually, when we were out handing out leaflets on one of our, na our national campaign days, people from all walks of life feeling that actually government should be more interventionist when it comes to that. I would personally like to see some of that devolved to our regions to run, yeah. rather than necessarily Whitehall running it. So I'd like Transport for the North, for example, mm. uh, to, and, and, uh, uh, and a regional body uh, for Yorkshire and Humber to have more control over what's going on, for example, in our transport Do you not system. have to pinch yourself sometimes, though? You think back to that 2015 election and all that stuff about Red Ed, <laughs> and now you've got Corbyn doing quite well with a plan. Yeah, but, I mean, I think, again, you know, it's, it's partly about what's happened, you know, in terms of people's... I think there was a, there was a certain burn with all this. I think the financial crash mm. challenged people's assumptions about what they could rely on, about how the markets work, how the companies... I mean, I mean even today, we're still seeing some of the stuff. Mm. With, I mean, my, so my constituency, just to say, you know, 31 towns and villages, you know, some of them former mining villages, some of them market towns and what have you. You know, we see RBS and others just literally shutting every bank 
you know, in these towns and villages. And people from all walks of life who wouldn't necessarily be natural labour supporters saying, why isn't there more control over these banks? Why are we losing these services? Why haven't we got those services? And, uh, and I think that has been a shift in some of the public's mind about, you know, who they can rely on, who they can trust. In some ways, it plays also to the decision on the referendum. Institutions, many institutions, Parliament and MPs' expenses, the mm -hmm. BBC, Jimmy Savile, um, the banks and the European Union. Institutions, I think, probably in the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years, uh, the deference and the faith in them has taken a hit. And that has, I think, affected in some ways people's ideas about what governments should do and what they should attend to. And I think some of that Jeremy is speaking to. You've described the People's Vote campaign as a vehicle for the creation of a new centrist party. <laughs> do you still believe that? And do you think you have colleagues in the Parliamentary Labour Party who might join it? Uh, yeah. To both? Yeah. You're not going to name any names now, are you? No. Okay. Wasn't even worth asking. Uh, John McDonnell said he couldn't be friends with a Tory. Can you? Um, Are there Tories you admire? Yeah, there's Tories I've worked with over the years. When I first came into Parliament, um, I used to be involved in a, um, a national childcare uh, charity. It used to be called the Workplace Nurseries Campaign, and then we became the National uh, Childcare Campaign. And, uh, and when I came into Parliament, and there were all these all-party groups for beer and caravans and everything else, I found, to my amazement, this is 1997, there was no all-party group on childcare. So uh, Caroline Spellman, who's a Conservative mm -hmm. MP, she came in 97, and a Liberal Democrat MP, is no longer an MP, Paul Keach. We established the first all-party childcare group. And, um, and I was very pleased to work with them on that. Um, I've sat on select committees over the year. I'm currently on the Public Accounts Committee. Um, actually, I think the Public Accounts Committee is a really good committee. Mm -hmm. We don't have the politicians in front of us, so there's a bit, maybe a little less... I'm not saying we're not robust, but maybe there's a little less partisan grandstanding that goes on. And, and I have to say, um, you know, one of the great things about that committee is how, um, you know, colleagues from all parties leave their, almost their tribalism at the door to hold the government to account and projects to account. Uh, when I um, was able to get an amendment to a finance bill uh, a couple of years back on public country-by-country country reporting. This is about you know, the big multinationals like Google and everything else putting in the public domain where they do their business, their economic activity. Mm -hmm. um, it was the only amendment that the government uh, accepted on the finance bill. And that's because you know, I was building a cross-party campaign of Tories, SMB Liberals, you know, Irish politicians and everything else, as well as obviously Labour, to back that. So sometimes it, it can work. And, and I wouldn't say that, you know, I have... I live in Doncaster. I don't live in London. I have, my, I have a life that is far away from here. The friends I go out with and see, none of them are politicians. So, you know, maybe that's a bit different in these things. Um, I didn't go to the same, you know, lots of people have connections in Parliament. They were all at Oxford or Cambridge or something like that. That's fair enough. They have those connections. But over the years, you know, I think, you know, there have been some politicians, including Conservatives, who've been incredibly sensitive on a personal level as a human being that I think is important. And I hope, you know, when certain Conservative MPs have had difficult times and I've worked with them in other capacities. I hope I've been a human person. To, well, I am a human person, obviously, but I hope I, my human side, rather than my tribalism side, is something that is a good thing. 
And on the same sort of theme, I mean, you've talked about the need to leave what you call the trench warfare of the referendum behind us <laughs> and uh, overcome those. That was How, wish, maybe that's wishful well, thinking. Well, maybe it was, know. but I just wondered if you had any thoughts as to, as, I mean, obviously not having a second referendum, I'd imagine, would be mm. quite high on that mm. list, but how, how would you think we should go about doing that? I think it, well, my hope was, I suppose, that we could, as part of this process, um, uh, get to a point where we could have, a, I suppose, for want of a better phrase, a more honest and grown-up discussion about the choices that face us. And that that would mean that there would have to be some sort of bespoke deal, mm -hmm. that within it there would, have to, there would be elements that, you know, you could explain to people that showed that we, you know, why we, you know, we aren't a member of the EU, where our independence and sovereignty is, is clear, but at the same time not abandoning a sensible discussion about where in our mutual interest it's important to have a strong mm -hmm. cooperative relationship going forward. And I sort of still believe that. And, but also, you know, I think there are, I mean, I, despite some of the very polarised, you know, stuff you get on Twitter and social media, I mean, I do have people contacting me, thankfully, both leave and remain supporters, some from my constituency, some not, who when I, you know, write a piece, like for The Guardian the other week, or on, on any questions or what have you, do sort of say, I think, you know, we need to try and move forward. And who knows what might be the situation in 10, 15 years. And none of us really know that. Um, but trying to, you know, get the best deal we can uh, which involves compromise, which will involve having to concede certain areas that we've had benefits mm -hmm. from in the past. But importantly, start addressing the issues of the discontent in such large numbers across areas of our country that led to that outcome. So on that, and if that, I said for, to you... that for me is probably the biggest issue for me out of all this, is I would be, you know, to think that, you know, somehow that would just get marginalised all over again. But on that, if I were to say to you, what are the two biggest political imperatives beyond Brexit? Well, the two things, if you were Prime Minister, what mm. two things would you focus on? Two public policies oh. for a post-Brexit world? Uh, transport, definitely. I mean, look, um, so if I take the north of England, for example, we've got HS2 being planned. I think that's, <laughs> you know, I wasn't necessarily against HS2. I, I did say it at the time, although it wasn't my brief, why don't they start in the north and work their way down? That might be a bit helpful. Um, but it's, again, it's, um, it, it's hit a lot of um, obstacles along mm -hmm. the way. It is overspending. It is not the proposition it essentially was, which was super fast, because you, as soon as you add more stops in, that stops happening. But I would give you an example if in the north of England, HS3, as it's known, um, or, or, or was almost crossrail of the north, which would connect east to west, I personally think that the government should commit to delivering that either at the same time as HS2 or even before, because that would have much more impact, not just on Yorkshire, but the northeast and the northwest of England, uh, uh, I believe, than HS2 in itself. But I also believe this is that within the big infrastructure projects, there has to be room for some of those smaller, whether it's road or train projects, that make a real difference to people's lives. This year, um, the road connecting um, uh, the M18 out through Doncaster to the airport mm -hmm. in my constituency, which I campaigned for, 
finally got completed. It's taken 17 years to get that done. But I can tell you, in terms of local people using it, it's reduced the commuter times for people working in Sheffield. It's made it far easier to get across the borough. But also, in terms of our airport and our iPort and the jobs that are being created there, it's been a massive catalyst. It isn't often, Anna, that you have constituents coming up to you literally spontaneously and saying, Caroline, that road is really good. We've got to have an offer for people that's something really on their lives. I remember doing any questions in Fleetwood a few years back. My grandparents retired to Fleetwood. They haven't got a station. There isn't a rail station in somewhere like Fleetwood, you know. I don't know how many people know Fleetwood, but it used to be a major fishing area. You know, it, you know it's a substantial population still there. And that's why, you know, if we don't speak to some of those worries about infrastructure, broadband is another thing. Yeah. Broadband is another example where we, I've got houses going up in my constituency, new build, and they haven't got the latest fibre broadband uh, infrastructure in them. That is just crazy. Um, and I think it's those sort of things where maybe we have to just sort of reduce the number of things we do and do some things, maybe fewer things, better, but also to be able to look at the score sheet and say, are people in you okay. know, this area saying, that's good, they haven't given us everything, but they've given us something that we really, really need, and we can see a difference. There's one more question. You have to be quick on this because Thank we're running out of time before we do our crossfire. I really want to ask you, you, you were famous for accusing Gordon Brown of using you as female window dressing. Yeah. Have things got better for women in politics since then? <laughs> oh, I think there's still a certain amount of that that goes on, not just in politics and other walks of life. But let me just maybe just explain about that as well. It wasn't just me. I think there was a problem in that um, there started to be a fashion being created, whereby at a cabinet level, uh, women were there, but they weren't cabinet, if you see what I mean. So you weren't secretaries of state. So what you start doing, and actually I think Gordon started it, Cameron was doing it, and I, I'm not quite sure where they are on it these days. Under it's Theresa. hard to keep track. It is hard to keep track. There's so many changes in the, in the cabinet back and forth, so you forgive me on that. But it seemed to be this thing where suddenly you'd have people attending cabinet. Now, the thing about that at the time was that actually, uh, I think there were half a dozen, I think, women who were there to attend Cabinet, which maybe made the numbers look great, but you weren't first amongst equals around that table. And that was part of my point, uh, and, and in terms of what I was saying then. And I think, you know, um, you know, part of it as well was, I was Europe Minister, okay? I was moved from housing, a job I actually loved. I've been very happy to stay at housing. I got moved to uh, um, the Foreign Office on Europe. I would have to say I found some, a department where there were some great people there, but it very much faced outwards to Europe and not listening to what country, the country was saying about our relationship with Europe. And we had the European elections in 2009. I was um, informed that I could attend Cabinet when Europe was being discussed. In the whole period, that I was Europe Minister, I wasn't invited to attend Cabinet. <laughs> so forgive me if at that point I started thinking, what, what is the point, you know, in the run-up to the European elections, which we did very badly in, and quite frankly, I could see, because I spent a lot of time trying to go out around the country to try and engage with people about 
you know, the benefits of the European Union. And I don't blame the European Union all for this. We've had decades of governments blaming Europe when things go wrong mm. and then taking credit when it goes right. I think all parties are guilty of that. But, you know, that was the environment in which I was working in. Okay. And there's a point at which where whatever job you're doing in life, if you really don't feel you're making a contribution as much as you want, then I think you have to move. Okay, before we finish, we have a few quick-fire questions for you. Okay. Ready? Beer or burgundy? Beer or burgundy? Um, beer. Beatles or the Stones? Oh, um, Beatles. Oh, shame on you. Cheddar or Camembert? Uh, cheddar. Oasis or Blur? Oh, dear. Uh, blur, because I know David Rowntree. Appalling. <laughs> <laughs> Beef bourguignon or steak and ale pie? Oh, I like a pie. Good. UK in a changing Europe or any other think tank you can think of? It's got to be UK in a changing Europe. That's a fantastic <laughs> answer for which I will award you. This is very rare. Are you very excited? I am. Hey, Excellent. Just for thank you. you. Thank Caroline, you thank you so much. Thank you. You can have the box as well. Thank you.